Part six, chapter twenty one of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Kane. Part six, chapter twenty one. It was a perfect morning, soft and fresh, and sweet with the odours and the colours of spring. New gorse flashed from the hedges, the violets peeped from the banks. Over the freshening green of the fields the young lambs sported, and the lark sang in the thin blue air. The town, as they dipped into it, was full of life. At the turn of the courthouse the crowd was densest. A policeman raised his hand in front of the horses, and Gemma Lord drew up. Then the high bailiff stepped to the gate and read an address. It mentioned Iron Christian, calling him the great deemster. The town took pride to itself that the first Manx governor of man was born in Ramsey. Philip answered briefly, confining himself to an expression of thanks. There was great cheering, and then the carriage moved on. The journey thereafter was one long triumphal passage. At Solby Street and at Ballor Street there were flags and throngs of people. From time to time other carriages joined them, falling into line behind. The bishop was waiting at Bishop's Court, and place was made for his carriage immediately after the carriage of the governor. At Tyndall there was a sweet and beautiful spectacle. The children of St. John's were seated on the four rounds of the mount, boys and girls in alternate rows, and from that spot, sacred to the memory of their forefathers for a thousand years, they sang the national anthem as Philip passed on the road. The unhappy man lay back in his seat, his eyes filled, his throat rose, Oh, for what might have been! Under Harry Delaney's tree, a company of fishermen were waiting with a letter. It was from their mates at Kinsale. They could not be at home that day, but their hearts were there. Every boat would fly her flag at the masthead, and at twelve o'clock noon every Manx fisherman on Irish waters would raise a cheer. If the Irishman asked them what they meant by that, they would answer and say, It's for the fisherman's friend, Governor Philip Christian. The unhappy man was no longer in pain. His agony was beyond that. A sort of divine madness had taken possession of him. He was putting the world and the prince of the world behind his back. All this worldly glory and human gratitude was but the temptation of Satan. With God's help he would not succumb. He would resist. He would triumph over everything. Gemma Lord twisted on the box seat. See, Your Excellency, listen. The flags of Castletown were visible on the eagle tower of the castle. Then there was a multitudinous murmur. Finally a great shout. Now, boys, three times three, hip, hip, hurrah! At the entrance to the town an evergreen arch had been erected. It bore an inscription in Manx. Dunya Vannin, Liat Mer Hoilu, Man of man, success as thou deservest. The carriage had slacked down to a walk. Drive quicker, cried Philip. The streets are crowded, Your Excellency, said Gemma Lord. Flags were flying from every window, from every roof, from every lamp-post. The people ran by the carriage, cheering. Their shout was a deafening uproar. Philip could not respond. She will hear it, he thought. His head dropped. He was picturing Kate in her cell with the clamour of his welcome coming muffled through the walls. They took the road by the harbour. Suddenly the carriage stopped. The men were taking the horses out of the shafts. No, no, cried Philip. He had an impulse to alight, but the carriage was moving again in a moment. It is the last of my punishment, he thought, and again fell back. 
Then the shouting and the laughter ran along the quay with the crackle and roar of a fire. A regiment of soldiers lined the way from the drawbridge to the portcullis. As the carriage drew up, they presented arms in royal salute. At the same moment, the band of the regiment inside the keep played God Save the Queen. The high bailiff of the town opened the carriage door and presented an address. It welcomed the new governor to the ancient castle wherein his predecessors had been installed, and took fresh assurance of devotion to the crown from the circumstance that one of their own countrymen had been thought worthy to represent it. No Manxman had ever been so honoured in that island before, since the days of the new governor's own great kinsman, familiarly and affectionately known to all Manxmen through two centuries as Ilium Doan, Brown William. Philip replied in few words, the cheering broke out afresh, the band played again, and they entered the castle by the long corridor that led to the council chamber. In an ante-room the officials were waiting. They were all elderly men, and old men, who had seen long and honourable service, but they showed no jealousy. The clerk of the rolls received his former pupil with a shout wherein personal pride struggled with respect, and affection with humility. Then the Attorney-General welcomed him in the name of the bar, as head of the judicature, as well as head of the legislature, taking joy in the fact that one of their own profession had been elevated to the highest office in the Isle of Man. Glancing at his descent from an historic Manx line, at his brief but distinguished career as judge, which had revived the best traditions of judicial wisdom and eloquence, and finally wishing him long life and strength for the fulfilment of the noble promise of his young and spotless manhood. Mr. Attorney-General, said Philip, I will not accept your congratulations. Much as it would rejoice my heart to do so, it would only be another grief to me if you were to repent, as too soon you may, the generous warmth of your reception. There were puzzled looks, but the sage counsellors could not receive the right impression. They could only understand the reply in the sense that agreed with their present feelings. It is beautiful, they whispered, when a young man of real gifts is genuinely modest. Excuse me, gentlemen, said Philip, I must go into my room. The clerk of the rolls followed him, saying, Ah, poor Tom Christian would have been a proud man this day, prouder than if the honour had been his own ten thousand thousand times. Have mercy, have mercy, and leave me alone, said Philip. I didn't mean to offend you, Christian, said the clerk. Philip put one hand affectionately on his shoulder. The eyes of the robustious fellow began to blink, and he returned to his colleagues. There was a confused murmur beyond the farther wall of the room. It was the room kept for the deemster when he held court in the council chamber. One of its two doors communicated with the bench. As usual, a constable kept this door. The man loosened his chain and removed his helmet. His head was grey. "'Is the courthouse full?' asked Philip. The constable put his eye to the eye-hole. "'Crowded, Your Excellency.' "'Keep the passages clear.' "'Yes, Your Excellency.' "'Is the clerk of the court present?' "'He is, Your Excellency.' "'And the jailer?' "'Downstairs, Your Excellency.' "'Tell both they will be wanted.' The constable turned the key of the door and left the room. Gemma Lord came puffing and perspiring. "'The ex-governor is coming over by the green, sir. He'll be here in a moment.' "'My wig and gown, Jemmy,' said Philip. "'Deemster's wig, Your Excellency?' "'Yes.' "'Last time you'll wear it, sir.' "'The last indeed, my lad.' There was a clash of steel outside, followed by the beat of drum. "'He's here,' said Gemma Lord. 
Philip listened. The rattling noise came to him through opening doors and reverberating corridors, like the trampling of a wave to a man imprisoned in a cave. She'll hear it, too. That thought was with him constantly. In his mind's eye he was seeing Kate, crouching in the fire seat of the palace room that was now her prison, and covering her ears to deaden the joyous sounds that broke the usual silence of the gloomy walls. Gemma Lord was at the eye-hole of the door. "'He's coming on to the bench, sir. The gentlemen of the council are following him, and the courthouse is full of ladies.' Philip was pacing to and fro like a man in violent agitation. At the other side of the wall the confused murmur had risen to a sharp crackle of many voices. The constable came back with the clerk of the court and the jailer. "'Everything ready, Your Excellency?' said the clerk of the court. The constable turned the key of the door, and laid his hand on the knob. "'One moment. Give me a moment,' said Philip. He was going through the last throes of his temptation. Something was asking him, as if in tones of indignation, what right he had to bring people there to make fools of them, and something was laughing as if in mockery at the theatrical device he had chosen for gathering together the people of rank and station, and then dismissing them like naughty schoolchildren. This idea clamoured loud in wild derision, telling him that he was posing, that he was making a market of his misfortune, that he was an actor, and that whatever the effect of the scene he was about to perform, it was unnecessary and must be contemptible. You talk of your shame and humiliation. No atonement can wipe it out. You came here prating to yourself of blotting out the past. No act of man can do so. Vain, vain, an idol as well as vain mere mummery and display, and a blow to the dignity of justice. Under the weight of such torment the thought came to him that he should go through the ceremony after all, that he should do as the people expected, that he should accept the governorship, and then defy the social ostracism of the island by making Kate his wife. It's not yet too late, said the tempter. Philip stopped in his walk and remembered the two letters of yesterday. Thank God, it is too late, he said. He had spoken the words aloud, and the officers in attendance glanced up at him. Gemma Lord was behind, trembling and biting his lip. It was indeed too late for that temptation, and then the vanity of it, the cruelty and insufficiency of it. He had been a servant of the world long enough. From this day forth he meant to be its master. No matter if all the devils of hell should laugh at him, he was going through with his purpose. There was only one condition on which he could live in the world that he should renounce it. There was only one way of renouncing the world, to return its wages and strip off its livery. His sin was not only against Kate, against Pete, it was against the island, and the island must set him free. Philip approached the door, slackened his pace with an air of uncertainty. At one step from the constable he stopped. He was breathing noisily. If the officers had observed him at that moment they must have thought he looked like a man going to execution. But the constable gazed before him with a sombre expression, held his helmet in one hand, and the knob of the door in the other. Now, said Philip, with a long inspiration. There was a flash of faces, a waft of perfume, a flutter of pocket-handkerchiefs, and a deafening reverberation. Philip was in the courthouse. End of Part 6, Chapter 21